Uh, I'm not really sure why I'm coming up here to preach. I think I should have asked Howard to preach. He was ready to go this morning. Uh, it is good to be in the house of the Lord with you uh, this morning at the beginning of a brand new year. I do want to make one other important announcement. It's actually, um, in my opinion, the most important announcement for this moment, and that is the very first announcement that's in the worship guide, and that is we are having a family meeting this coming Sunday night, Sunday, January the 9th. It'll be at 6 o'clock. It'll be in this room, and here's what I'm asking. I'm asking, the elders are asking all of our members to be here in the building for this meeting. Now, we do know some of you will be traveling. We do know some of you will be uh, working. We know that some of you are, are sick or, or will be sick that day or whatever. But if those things aren't happening in your world and you are in town and healthy and not working, we're asking you to be here in the building, if at all possible, at 6 o'clock on that evening. If you're not able to be here, then send an email to elders at lhbc.net. We will send you the link for a live stream of the evening. Now, understandable, it's not just for members. Anybody can come, but we definitely want our members to be here to be a part of the family meeting. All right, hopefully you, when you came in, you've got a worship guide. On the back of the worship guide, you will see there are no notes this week. We've been working on a short week again, but I will have notes on the screen. I will have content to my message, and you may want to jot down some ideas as we walk through. So we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 24 this morning, and the title of the message this morning is, Is This the End? Is this the end? As a church family, we've been walking through, in the year of 2021, we've been walking through the New Testament, a chapter a day, five days a week, and we have come to the end of 2021. So you may be wondering, well, what's 2022 hold for us? Uh, I'm asking all of us to be studying God's Word in some shape, form, or fashion. And you may already have a plan in place to study God's Word this year. And if you don't, then I would encourage you to pick one of these up. They're out in the, the rack in the hallway. It's uh, the book of Psalms uh, that is kind of a suggested reading guide if you don't already have one. And uh, it's about three chapters a, a week. It starts next Sunday, January the 9th. You can feel free to pick one of those up. And then in the uh, Sunday morning worship services, we'll be walking through the book of Acts. Now, next Sunday, I plan on preaching one message out of the book of Psalms, and then the following Sunday, the 16th, is where, when we'll kick off uh, the study of the book of Acts. And the entire year, for the most part, will be the book of Acts. Uh, during Easter, we'll, we'll cover the Easter story and different things like that, but for the most part, we'll be in Acts the entire year of 2022. Encourage you to uh, be reading the book of Acts as we study that together. All right. The year 2022, it's weird to even say that. I, I don't know about you, but if you're like me, in so many ways, the year 2022, when I was a kid, sounded like something that you would find on a movie setting in, in, a, in a kind of a post-apocalyptic type movie. Like, 2022, isn't most everything in those movies supposed to be happening about this year, right now? I flashed back to uh, Mad Max and uh, Beyond Thunderdome, and I think it was about this time, if not already happened. And who knew two years ago on this Sunday that we were about to enter living on the movie set of a, of a dystopian type movie. I mean, it's been crazy all that we have faced over the last couple of years. And the reason I say all that is because in so many ways, we as humans have always been intrigued by, we've always been fascinated by, and sometimes been fearful of the end times, the end of the world, the future. What does the future hold? 
And that's not a strange phenomenon just to our time period. We're going to look at a story in the Gospels, in the book of Matthew, and we're going to see that the disciples were intrigued by the end times. The disciples were maybe fearful of the end times, and they are asking Jesus, what is it all about? So if you've got a Bible, please pull it out. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a chair near you. If you don't have a Bible at the house, feel free to take that home with you, uh, and that'll be our gift to you. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. We're going to start by looking at the first two verses of the chapter. Here's what it says. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now let me give you kind of the setting of what's happening. This is what we refer to as the Holy Week. If you were here last Sunday, you know we looked at Matthew chapter 21, which was the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which was the Sunday of the week of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, uh, the, the week before the first Easter Sunday. Well, now we're in Matthew 24, and, and commentators and scholars will kind of look at the timeline, and you can look at the timeline as well in the Gospels, and we see that this conversation that takes place in Matthew 24 was apparently on Tuesday uh, before Jesus would be uh, arrested and then crucified on Friday. So that's kind of the time frame that's happening here. We see in Matthew 23 that Jesus is in the temple and he's preaching and teaching. And then now as we begin chapter 24, we see that Jesus is now leaving the temple area after preaching. And that's when the disciples say something quite interesting. It seems so random. Here are the disciples in verse 2, uh, sorry, verse 1. It, it says that the disciples came and they pointed out all the buildings of the temple grounds and said, Jesus, look at these. Like, Jesus had just been there. He'd been preaching and teaching there. Why are they saying, look at these buildings? Well, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that many times there are the same account of the same story in some of the other Gospels. And so this account that's found in Matthew 24 is also found in Mark chapter 13. So I want to read what Mark 13.1 says that the disciples said. They said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So they're not just pointing out the fact that the temple's over there. They're saying, look at this, Jesus. This temple complex is amazing. It is glorious. It is wonderful. It is fabulous. They're pointing out all of these things about the temple grounds. They're enamored by the majesty of the temple. I knew I was going to do that. I was fixing to move the microphone, and I moved it by hitting it. All right, I think I have a picture of the model of, of the temple grounds in Jerusalem. And, and on this picture, that should be coming up in a second, you're going to see, um, no, maybe not. Uh, there's a picture of, of the, is it there? All right, so in Jerusalem, when you go to Jerusalem, you can go to a place where they actually have a, 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 a model of what the temple grounds would look like. So this is not the real temple because it's not there anymore. Uh, it, but it's a picture of the model, and that whole foreground, the, everything in our front section there is the temple. And then you see all the other little buildings and things behind it. So you see how massive, how huge this temple complex was. 
And so they are enamored by the hugeness of this temple and the significance that this temple represents for them. If you look at, we're not going to read the, the verse, but you can jot it down. John chapter 2 verse 20 tells us that it took 46 years to build that temple. 46 years to build that temple. They started building it in the year 20. And so when Jesus is talking, it hasn't been around or completed all that long. But it's huge. It's amazing the enormous enormity of this building. And, and let me describe a little bit more. I had an opportunity to go to Jerusalem uh, when I was in seminary. And a portion of the temple wall is still there. Perhaps you've heard of the Wailing Wall. The better phrase is the Western Wall. The Western Wall of the temple. At the southwest corner, we took this picture. My friend Rick is standing there. And he is there to show the uh, kind of the, the, the depth and the length of that stone. You see where he's standing. He's about six foot tall. And where he's standing, that stone is, is starting there, coming all the way to this corner. Uh, now, I didn't measure it that day. I'm not sure how far it is, but you can see it's a pretty huge piece of stone that they used to build the temple. And the reality is some of those stones that they built the temple with were 40 feet long by 12 feet by 12 feet. Those are huge stones. Do you know how much those stones weighed? Some of them weighed as much as 200,000 pounds. Now, I don't know how they built it. They don't have the modern machinery that we have today for construction, but they built a magnificent edifice. And so whenever the disciples are pointing back to this temple, they're saying, look at this, Jesus. Isn't this amazing? Now, I don't think they were just saying, look how big it is, look how beautiful it is, look how amazing it is. They're not just saying, look at, at how it's built out of, out of limestone and how it's gleaming and glaring and beautiful and how, how they actually had uh, like gold plates put on parts of it so that the sun would reflect off of it. That's not what they're pointing to, not just the beauty of it. They're saying this is a significant place where we come together to worship and this is the identity of our people. Jesus makes a shocking reply to them. Look down in verse 2. Let me paraphrase what Jesus says. Jesus says, hey guys, one day, every stone you're looking at is going to be hurled down so that it's no longer standing like you see it now. Jesus leaves no room for it might happen. He's saying it definitely will happen. Here's how I know he's saying that. Look in verse 2. Jesus says, truly I say to you. Jesus doesn't lie. Jesus always tells the truth. And the word truly here is the word uh, amen or um, amen, A-M-E-N. And whenever Jesus says it, it says this will definitely happen. And then the second part, uh, I know Jacob Justice uh, got a kick out of this when I said this the last time. Uh, in this verse, it says that not one stone will be, uh, it says, sorry, here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The word not there is actually a double not. It's a not not. And, and it's ume in the Greek. And so it's saying this is definitely going to happen. Now, it seems quite random, like, the disciples go, hey, Jesus, look at, these look at this temple. Isn't it pretty? And Jesus goes, you know what? Those are all going to fall down. Like, it's a weird conversation. And we're like, why is this even going on? 
Let's keep moving. We'll talk about why it's going on. Verse 3. After they get done talking, it says that Jesus is leaving the temple. Where is he going? He's going east of town. He's going to go through the Kidron Valley. He's going to go to the Mount of Olives, which is just to the east of town. In verse 3 it says, as he, talking about Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples could not understandably shake the thought of what Jesus just said. Jesus just said that the temple would be destroyed, toppled over, and and torn down. And they can't get it out of their mind. And so they come to Jesus and go, Jesus, tell us, what is this all about? When is this happening? What is this? How's this going to look? I have one more picture I do want to show you. This is a picture, not that I took, but it is a picture from the Mount of Olives. And you see the gold dome there. That is a a Muslim uh, building now. But it's sitting right on top of where the temple was. And so you can see down in the Kidron Valley across to where the temple was. So at that time, the disciples and Jesus would have been standing on the Mount of Olives looking down, and they're seeing the temple, and they're still confused. How could this be, Jesus, that it's all going to be knocked down? So they ask him two questions. Here are the two questions that the disciples ask him in verse 3. The first one is this. When will the end come? When will the end come? And, and whenever he asks that question, we look and see in verse 3, it says, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The word coming, in, in Greek, perhaps you've heard the word of parousia, the word parousia means the future visible return of Jesus. So now the conversation is even more confusing. They're standing at the temple, the disciples look and say, hey, Jesus, look at this temple. Jesus goes, hey, one day, boys, this is all going to be knocked down. And then they jump and say, okay, Jesus, when are you coming back? Like, it makes no sense to our minds what's going on. Let's unpack it and figure out what's happening here. The disciples are saying, if something so cataclysmic, if something so huge as the destruction of the temple is coming, that can only be the sign of one thing, and that is the world is coming to an end. Like, there's no other way they could rationalize and think how the temple would ever be destroyed. I mean, it's God's holy place. It's where he dwells. That's what their thought process is. It's a special place. It's where everything happens. And they're going, there's no way that temple could ever be destroyed unless the world, as we know it, is coming to an end. It's the end of the age. That's what they're realizing. That's what they're thinking. The end of the age. What is meant when they say end of the age? It's another word for eschatology. Maybe you've heard of that word before. The study of the last things. Eschatology means death and judgment. It's the final destination or destiny of the people that they either go to heaven or go to hell. And so they're saying, Jesus, when is the end of the world happening? If the temple's demolished, then obviously the end is coming. The second question that they ask him is also found in verse 3. And they say, what will the sign be? What will be the sign of the end of the age? Essentially, the disciples come to Jesus and they go, hey, Jesus, like we need some insider information. 
You're telling publicly that this thing's going to be destroyed. We're coming to you privately, and we're saying, give us kind of insider information. If this is going down, if this is going to happen, we need to know when and what to look for so that we can be prepared, so that we maybe can try to avoid it or, or something. So they're asking for insider information. And the interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't really even answer their question. Jesus does answer them. Jesus does respond. We're going to look at his response in just a moment. But he doesn't answer the question exactly like they're asking it. Isn't that how God oftentimes is in our lives? Where we come to him and we want him to give us our answers. We want him to give us what we want. They want the answer. Jesus doesn't give it. Rather, Jesus knows what they need, and Jesus gives them what they need in the content of his response. And in our lives, as we reflect on 2021, as we look forward to 2022, as we consider the things going on in our lives or in our church life or in our community or, or in, our, in our hope groups or whatever's going on, in the lives of the people we care about, we want to know the future. And oftentimes, God doesn't give us the answer of what the future will be per se. Instead, he prepares us for that future that's on its way. And that's essentially what Jesus is going to do in this moment. He doesn't always give us what we want. In fact, he oftentimes doesn't. He doesn't give us what we want unless it's what we really truly need. So let's look at his answer. Matthew chapter 24 Verses 4 through 12, here is what Jesus says. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you over up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus, in this answer, as we're going to look at it more closely, Jesus tells them what's going to happen, not necessarily when it's going to happen. Jesus tells them what's going to happen, not necessarily what sign will show them it's about to happen, and what will happen and how they must and they need to respond to what happens. And as we read this, we must understand that he's talking about something that historically was going to happen, and yet it's also written for us to read, and the principles that they hear from Jesus are also principles that we need to hear from Jesus and apply to our lives as we consider what the future has for us as well. Now, Matthew 24 and 25, those two chapters are referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And the reason it's called the Olivet Discourse is because he was on the Mount of Olives, or Olivet, 
and he was discoursing. He was talking. And so here is a, a, a teaching time that Jesus has with his disciples found in Matthew 24 and 25 called the Olivet Discourse. If you've ever studied chapters 24 and 25, if you've ever read about chapters 24 and 25, you'll see that there is quite a um, disagreement at times on what some of this is addressing. And, and here is why. Because Jesus, in this two, these two chapters, is referring to two different events. Here's one event that Jesus is referring to. Jesus is referring to the time that the temple would be destroyed, which is in the year A.D. 70. In the year A.D. 70, Titus would lead the Roman army into Jerusalem. They would overthrow Jerusalem. They would topple down the, 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 the temple, just as Jesus said. And so there is one thing that Jesus is prophesying to. In the next 30 to 40 years, the Romans would come in and destroy the temple. The other thing that Jesus addresses in, in chapters 24 and 25 is the end of the age. The disciples are asking about the end of the age. And so the end of the age is talking about when he will return. We're looking at the book of Matthew and talking about how Jesus is the coming king because the day is coming when Jesus will come again. The second advent, he will come and bring us, the church, to himself. And so in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is actually intermingling in some ways his explanation of these two events. And so the question is, as you read Matthew 24 and 25, you'll be at times going, okay, wait a minute, is he talking right now about when Jerusalem's going to be overthrown, and therefore is he talking to those disciples that are listening to him in that moment that they're going to experience in their generation, or is he talking about the end times when he is going to return and establish his kingdom forever? And so that's why it can be confusing at times. So the question is this, why did Jesus mention both of these events simultaneously kind of intermingled in chapters 24 and 25? There, there's at least a couple of reasons why he does that. One, because the disciples kind of intermingled it, right? Jesus says, hey, the temple's going to be destroyed. And they come up, okay, that's great. When is that going to happen? When, is, when are you going to return? So the disciples ask the question, and so he has to address both topics. And then also, the coming judgment that would come as Jerusalem would be destroyed and the temple would be destroyed and his return in the future have some common characteristics. Now, I've not been to the Rockies many times, but I have been a few times. And perhaps you've been to the Rocky Mountains, or maybe you've been to another mountain range. Think about it as you begin to arrive towards a mountain range. And I'm not talking about anything that Texas has to offer. I'm talking about true mountain ranges. It's as you pull up closer to them, and nothing but mountain tops and mountain peaks on the horizon. When you see them, and they're all together on the horizon, don't they all look like they're maybe like next door neighbors like just side by side like you could hop from one top to the other they're that close no the reality is many times those mountain peaks are miles and miles apart but whenever we look into the future or where we're headed we see them side by side as if they're really close together Jesus is using a similar teaching approach as he's mentioning the the upcoming judgment of of of, of Jerusalem when it's going to be destroyed in the year 70 and he's also talking about the other mountain peaks in the future as well as he talks about the common characteristics between the judgment of AD 70 as well as the judgment at the end of the world so Jesus He's actually 
talking to two audiences in, in, in this record. He, all of the words, obviously, are being shared with and spoken to and applied to the audience that's before him, the disciples. But he's also talking to us as we read it because the end has not yet come. And so we read this, and yes, the destruction of the temple has already happened, but the end of the age has not yet come. And so Jesus is, is prepping his listeners for the impending destruction of Jerusalem, and he's also prepping his disciples of all times, of all ages, of all countries and nations for his impending return. I, I want us to look at how Jesus answered that question. We read verses 4 through 12. What is he saying in these verses? There's a couple of categories that he addresses. First, number one, he shares with them two warnings. There are two warnings that Jesus shares with them. The first one is this. Don't let anyone lead you astray. These two warnings are imperatives. The part of speech that they are is, is imperatives. And so we see the first one in verse 4. In verse 4, he literally says, see that, or, or don't allow, or, or take heed, take warning, be on the alert for, that no one leads you astray. We're going to look at that in just a second. And then the second warning is found in verse 6. Same terminology, see that, or beware of, or be on alert for, see that you are not alarmed. And so the second warning is, don't give in to fear because of all that's happening around you. These words apply to his disciples who are looking forward to, not in a good way, but they're anticipating now that Jesus says that the temples will be destroyed, they're anticipating that coming. And so the two warnings that Jesus gives them is this, first, don't let anyone lead you astray. Let's look at this a little bit closer. Verses 4 and 5. He says, don't let anybody lead you astray, and here's why. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And then, in just a moment, as we read about the other things that are coming, the famines and the wars and, and the, the earthquakes, all of these things that are coming, Jesus says, in the middle of all this, don't let any of it cause you to get off the path of following me. He specifically addresses, though, in verse 5, false teachers, false prophets, false teachings that would cause you to get off of the path. There were false teachers in that time period. After Jesus' ascension into heaven, before AD 70 came, two or three different guys came and literally said, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, and they were absolutely wrong. People today don't have to say, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, to be a false teacher or a false prophet. There's all kinds of false teachings out there. If we don't dig into God's word, if we don't study God's word for ourselves, then we will fall for the schemes of Satan. So that's why reading God's word, that's why taking a class that would help you study God's word is important because if we don't, we are more susceptible to being led astray by the lies of the enemy. Too many churches 
Individual churches, denominations, we could list a few. I'm not going to take the time to do that. But too many churches have, have given in to and been led astray. and They've changed their understanding of God's word and make God's word say something it doesn't say because they think it's an obsolete book. And surely God would mean something different than what he says. Don't be led astray. A few weeks ago, I talked about how the end times is actually, in my opinion, my understanding, as we look at the book of Revelation, the end times started from the moment that Jesus ascended into heaven. And they're happening from that point until he returns, whenever that happens. So far, it's been almost 2,000 years. But whenever he returns, that whole time period, not just the last couple of days before he returns, all of it's the end times. And in the end times, these false teachers will just be just increasing and multiplying. Jesus says, don't be led astray. Study God's word. Don't fall for the lies of Satan. The second warning that he gives, don't give in to fear because of everything happening around you. He mentions in verses 6 through 8, look at the things that he mentions. He's, he says, you're going to hear of wars. You're going to hear rumors about wars. You're, you're going to uh, hear that nations are rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be famines. There's earthquakes in various places. All of these things are happening. And then just to encourage them some more, in verse 8, he goes, hey, all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. He's saying these things are happening and they will happen and they'll continue to happen. They're not going to stop. And these aren't the signs that the end's about to happen. The reality is it's just how this world is. In our society today, especially with the internet, especially the ability that we get news faster, isn't it every day that we hear about wars, rumors of wars, famine, earthquakes, destruction, or in the last two years, a pandemic? I mean, the list could go on and on and on. And all of these things, if we're not careful, are easily to be fearful about. Howard mentioned in his prayer that over the last two years, there's been a lot of things that have caused us to be fearful people. I'm speaking to myself when I say this, and I'm speaking to you as well. Every single one of us, I believe, to some degree or another, has struggled with fear over the last two years, regardless of what your stance and your view has been on masks and vaccinations and shutdowns and not shutdowns and quarantines and this and that. Regardless of where your stance is, if we were truthful with ourselves, we would see that at least a tinge of fear has driven our thoughts and our ideas at times. It's easy to be fearful when we see all that's swirling around us. And not only a pandemic, we think about the last two years of, of what's happened with, with uh, elections and what's happened with civil unrest and, and justice issues and all of these things have been reason for us, humanly speaking, to be fearful. But Jesus is saying, don't be alarmed, don't be fearful. I did a little bit of study this week. Whenever Jesus says this is just the beginning of the birth pains, 
when he says there's going to be wars and there's going to be earthquakes and all of these things are happening. Uh, perhaps you've heard this stat before. I'd, I'd heard it before, couldn't remember the details of it. It comes from a book called The Lessons of History, written in 1968 by Will Durant. And here's what it said. We've had wars in all but 268 of the last 3,500 years. So there has been a war. I don't know how they studied it. I don't know how they knew it. But the reality is I believe it. As many wars as there are in random places around the world that in the last 3,500 years of history, all but 268 have been struck by war. Earthquakes. Did you know that every year we average 20 major earthquakes a year, which is a 7 plus on the Richter scale? Here's a crazy one. 20,000 minor earthquakes happen a year of a 4 plus. I was in Guatemala a few years ago when we had one of those, and they do happen. Earthquakes happen. It's reality. What Jesus said 2,000 years ago is true, and we can't just look at that and go, oh, the wars are happening, earthquakes are happening, famine is happening, Jesus must be coming back tomorrow. The reality is Jesus says, no, that part is not a true sign. It's just birth pains of what will increase over time. So what does Jesus mean by birth pains? I'm a, I'm a, a guy. I've never had birth pains. And I've been with Ashley when she gave birth to three kids. And I still don't understand birth pains. It, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand them. And I can't relate to them. I know the last time I was coaching her, I, I tried my very best and didn't do a very good job of it. Because I'm a guy, I don't understand it, but I can at least intellectually understand the concept that giving birth, there are birth pains that happen with those contractions. And typically, from my understanding, again, I'm a dude, but from my understanding, those birth pains start off a little more mild. I didn't say mild, I said more mild than as we progress through the delivery of the child. And as you progress through the delivery of a child, those birth pains come more frequent and more intense. I think, spiritually speaking, birth pains, that Jesus said, no, this is just the beginning of birth pains, that in time, over the centuries, these birth pains that humanity has experienced is just happening at a more alarming rate and intensity as time goes on and on and on. But here's what I want you to hear. Don't fear. Don't fear whenever all the chaos happens around us. Whether it's the chaos of the last two years or unrelated to that, don't fear. We sang this morning and Jacob kind of addressed the idea that we have hope and this hope is found in Christ. Our hope is not found in anything else. Our hope is not found in a good economy. Our hope is not found as long as we have good health. Our hope is not found as long as we have good political situation. Our hope is not found as long as there's a lack of disaster. Our hope is not at all related to external things that happen in our lives. We're impacted by them. But our hope is not found in those things. So Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Jesus is saying, trust in me. Even when it all seems to be out of control, I am in control. Trust me. Reminds me of a story in Scripture, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, beginning in verse 23. Here's what happens. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. 
And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? I don't know what wind and sea is going crazy in your life today. But just as Jesus calmed those storms and he said, don't be afraid, I am with you, find your peace in me, Jesus is saying the same thing to you and I today. So Jesus gave him two warnings. He also gave him two pastoral um, thoughts. He's shepherding them. He's loving them well. He gives them two pastoral words and you see them on the screen. The first one is this, expect all kinds of trouble in life. And you go, well, I don't know how that's shepherding. It, it serves a purpose. Jesus is saying, expect it. It's coming, and therefore be prepared, and don't be shocked when it comes. Don't be alarmed. And then the other pastoral word that he shares with them is this, that many will fall away. And he's warning them. It's a form of warning, but it's meant in a pastoral way. Keep faithful to me and don't fall away. So in verse 9, we'll look at that first pastoral word. Expect all kinds of trouble in life. Verse 9. It says, I'm in the wrong chapter, I was about to read the wrong verse. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In addition to all that he's already listed, all the natural disasters he's already listed, now he lists these things that they are going to face. They're going to be hated, it says. They're going to face suffering. They're going to be killed. Not encouraging words, but it's the truth of the matter that they can expect at least some of these troubles in life. And in this verse, in verse 9, we see that this trouble that they're going to face comes from outsiders. The sad thing is that they're also going to face trouble from those that are in the church as well. Verse 10, and then many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. I, I realize that I, I'm saying the things I meant to say and I'm saying them out of order. I'm sorry. Um, so let me let me keep let me keep moving. What what I uh, uh, what I what I have on my notes here is the normal Christian life is filled with adversity suffering and pain and so don't be surprised when you face them the second encouraging pastoral word is that many will fall away i just read verse 10 that describes how people will fall away and betray one another and hate one another let's keep reading verses 11 and 12 it says many false prophets there's false prophets that show up again will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold Betrayal, hatred, false teachers, lawlessness, a lack of love, all of these within the church. Jesus says it's going to happen. What does lawlessness mean? And lawlessness, if you were looking at the Greek word, is uh, anomia. Uh, and nomia has to do with law, a has to do with not, so not the law. Essentially, he's saying there's going to be a contempt or a violation of the law, complete disregard for the law. It's going to cause people to grow cold 
in regards to love. Their love for God, their love for others will be diminished greatly and there'll be a lack of zeal for God. Jesus warns them of what's coming so that they might not be caught off guard. He's saying, don't be like these people. Don't be led astray. Don't be shocked by all kinds of troubles in life. And don't fall away from the faith. And then Jesus gets to the meat of what he wants to share with them in verses 13 and 14. 13 and 14, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus gives them two words. First of all, he says, persevere in your faith. And secondly, he's going to tell them to proclaim the gospel to all people. But before we get to that one, let's look at persevere in your faith. That's found in verse 13. He says, don't be led astray. Don't get off the trail. Don't, don't, don't uh, uh, go contrary to, to anything but following me. Resist and hold your ground. Verse 13, the word endure is here. And the word endure in the Greek is made up of two different words. Hupo and meno. Meno means to endure. Hupo, it, it means to be under the rule of someone. And so when we combine those two things together, whenever Jesus says endure, regardless of what life throws your way, endure in the faith, he says as we remain under God's rule, then we can have vibrant hope in the midst of our troubles. We're to glorify God in the midst of the things that we're facing. And the way we glorify God is that we realize we're learning lessons as we face these hardships in life. It's it, 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 at the surface level. When we read verse 13, it says, but the one who endures until the end will be saved. Some could say, oh my goodness, is this like works salvation? It's saying I've got to endure and do this and do this and do this and last to the very end and then my works will pile up and I'll be saved. No, it's not encouraging or talking or teaching about a work salvation. It's not salvation by endurance because that would be works based. Rather, it's salvation by faith and it's a faith that endures. In other words, those who are truly saved have a faith that will endure. Whenever it says that we're to persevere in our faith, it's not us that does the work. Instead, God secures our perseverance and he calls us to not be passive in the process. That we have an active role is he perseveres us. And that active role is to experience to expect that there's going to be difficulties, to watch for doctrinal error. And then I want to share this with us, that we would practice spiritual disciplines. How do we endure to the end? By spending time in God's Word, by spending time in prayer, by spending time in fellowship with the church body. Jesus says, endure until the end. As I think about the spiritual disciplines that God has called us to be about, studying his word, praying, and spending time with the church body. I realize that for various reasons, some that some of us couldn't avoid, others of us, we, we, we allowed this to get in our way. The COVID stretch has totally thrown these disciplines out of whack for many of us. 
we've stopped studying God's word. We've stopped praying. We've, we've stopped really participating in the full life of the body of Christ that's found in the local church. It's time for us to get those spiritual disciplines back in check. Not so that we can earn God's favor or God's grace, but instead, as a part of enduring to the end, we've got to study God's word, we've got to pray, and we've got to spend time with other followers of Jesus. I encourage you that as we begin this year to recommit to each of these. If we don't, we're going to experience what it says here, where our love will grow cold. These last couple of years have been hard. Howard and I were talking some about it yesterday, and the reality is this, many of us, whether we know it or not, have faced and are facing hurt and pain and fears and concern and confusion in these times. And I believe that for some of us, the reason we're experiencing that is because we've allowed the circumstances in our life to cause us to be fearful, and we have not stay true to our first love. It's time for us to focus on our first love again. Verse nine, uh, 14, the other piece that Jesus gives to them is to proclaim his word. It says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What Jesus is saying is, yes, the world has troubles and heartache and problems and famines and war and earthquakes and issues yes there's hatred yes there's betrayal yes there's there's tribulation but in the midst of it all none of those things will disrupt the progress of the kingdom being shared around the world rather sometimes the gospel is shared even more faithfully in the face of hardship and persecution in fact, as we study the book of Acts, in a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to see that when hardship came the church's way, they actually pressed in and proclaimed the gospel even more faithfully. So at the beginning of this text, the question was, when will the end come? What does Jesus say in verse 14? He says, the end will come after the gospel has been proclaimed throughout the whole world. You and I, as the church, we have one mission and that mission is to take the gospel to people all around the world. The book of Matthew finishes with the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says, Go therefore, Jesus does, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. My encouragement to all of us is don't let anything paralyze us from proclaiming the gospel i think that one thing that satan has tried to do in the church not just our church but the church around the world over the last couple of years is to paralyze us so that we get focused on what's happening in the here and now and what does the future hold and what do we do about this or that or the fears and the troubles and the persecution trying to figure out the end trying to figure it all out that we forget that our task and our responsibility is to persevere in our faith and to proclaim the gospel you see jesus his disciples were so focused on the future that he wants to draw them back in and say hey guys let's not worry about when the end comes rather let's focus on the task at hand and the task at hand is to persevere in your faith and proclaim the gospel 
I encourage us as we begin this new year, as we begin the year 2022, that we as individuals and that we as a church commit to get back on track with those two things. That, that we would not allow anything to disrupt our ability to persevere in the faith. That we would not allow anything to disrupt our opportunity to go out and proclaim the gospel to those around us. We've been led astray these past couple of years. All of the chaos and all the stuff that's been going on around us has caused many of us to focus on our fears or how to handle something instead of focusing on Jesus. What I want us to do is to take a few moments as we get ready to sing in just a moment. And I want us to recommit that based on the truth of God's word, that we will persevere in our faith and we will proclaim the gospel to those around us. And what I don't want to do is to force anyone to do anything or I don't want to be caught up in any kind of emotional thing or even New Year's resolution. Rather, I'm asking if there is a desire within you to persevere in your faith and to proclaim the gospel, would you literally take just a few moments to commit that to Jesus this morning? You might want to come do that by praying here at the altar. You may want to do that by praying there at your seat. You, you may want to do that by coming and sharing with me. But I believe that God is calling us as the church, specifically as Living Hope, to persevere in our faith in the midst of a trying time and to commit to proclaiming the gospel to all nations around us. Perhaps some of you in this room have never even trusted in Jesus as your Savior. And Jesus coming back is not a good thing for you right now, not to try to put fear in you, but the reality is this, the end times will settle with the destiny for all eternity for every single person that's ever lived, either in the presence of God in heaven or the absence of God in a place called hell. And it's not based on what we do to earn salvation. It's not based on anything that we can do. Rather, it's completely based on the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, paying the price that we could not pay ourselves overcoming sin and death and the grave by being resurrected on the third day would you trust in him and him alone for salvation i'm going to lead us in prayer and at the end of the prayer i ask you to take these next few moments to commit this year 2022 to persevering in the faith and proclaiming the gospel and asking god's help to do those things the altar will be open for prayer I'm available here at the front. Let's do business with God this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for a chance to be here and worship with your people this morning. God, we thank you that, that your word prepares us for the things that we face in life. And we know that we've faced challenging times and maybe have caused us to get off track or off the mark or be led astray. 
But Father, this morning, may we turn back our eyes to you and see that our hope is not found in our circumstances that are happening around us, but rather our hope is found in you and in you alone. And may we put a stake in the ground this afternoon that says that we will trust in you and that our hope is found in you. That we would put a stake in the ground and say that from this day forward, I'm going to strive to allow my the Holy Spirit to be at work in me in such a way that I'm going to persevere in the faith and I'm going to proclaim the gospel to those around me. God, we know there's nothing magical about a calendar date or turn to a new year on the calendar, but in this moment, regardless of what day is on the calendar, in this moment, because of the truth of your word, may you call us back to our first love and may that be the thing that presses us out in the life of obedience as we trust in you and whatever we face. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?